0: At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the second reading podcast for the week of September 29th. I'm Jim Henson, Director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm happy to welcome today as a guest, longtime acquaintance and friend Marcy Barabak, longtime political writer for the Los Angeles Times, who has been covering the 2020 presidential campaign closely. And we'll, we'll ask him, I, I can't remember exactly how many campaigns that is, but we'll we'll ask Mark about that. Uh, and today we wanna to talk about some recent writing Mark's done and, and get his impressions of the campaign. So uh, welcome Mark, you're at home in California. How are things there? You're in Northern California. And of course you guys are sadly in the news again.
1: Yeah, uh, the fires are raging again. Um, you know, we—I we, guess we can grade this sort of on a curve, if you will. I mean, I, I, I'm standing on my front porch, and I can actually see a uh, hillside, mountains that are maybe three, four, five blocks from my house. I mean, there are times when you could barely see across the street. I mean, I should make it clear—I I am not in immediate danger. I don't live anywhere in the fire zone, but of course, Northern California has been blanketed, uh, with, with, with smoke. And it's, I would say it's hazy, but it's not as bad as it's been. And and I do have some, uh, actually have a friend who, uh, maybe evacuating, come to stay with us for a few days. So I'll, uh, you know, send good thoughts their way because it's, it's, it's a scary time.
0: Very scary. And I, you know, I grew up in Southern California and have this, this memory of all that. And it's, but it's just gotten so dramatically worse. It seems to me. Um,
1: yeah. That it's yeah. In, well, is. you know, we used to talk about fire season basically being maybe September, October. I mean, you know, there was a horrible fire a few years back, a couple years back, or so on Christmas. So it's kind of like our fire season now extends. You know, when you and I were growing up, maybe as I said, September, October, but it's 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 becoming like a July to July to December thing these days.
0: Yeah. No. It is. It is incredible. Um, so I want I want to talk and I want to talk about some of the recent writing you've done from the campaign trail and. Uh, I want to start really with your most recent piece that you wrote with with Jenny Jarvie that is dated September 27th. And I know you were working on it for a while. The title kind of says it all. It's going, you know, it starts with a a poll quote from one of your interviews. It's going to be like war voters. Eye 2020 election outcome with fear and loathing. Um, And you set the story, you know, soon in with a a, a little excerpt. I'm just going to read briefly. It's that goes like this. Candidates often say a presidential contest is the most important ever, telling voters to act as though their life depended on it and the country's future was at stake. Dozens of conversations with voters across the nation, from the West Coast to the Upper Midwest to the East, suggest that, this time, many people really believe it. Punished by pandemic, buckled by economic hardship and riven by relentless partisanship, America is facing an election unlike any in modern times, a vote shadowed by menace and fringed with paranoia, much of it fed by the occupant of the Oval Office who incessantly acts to undermine confidence in the, re- in the result. So I, I want to talk about this and what your takeaway was. The story really is a, you know, an incredible mosaic with a lot of interviews from around the country and and tell me what you know. Tell us a little about the story and what you were trying to capture.
1: Well, I I, I want to give due credit. I'm not going to reel off all the names, but uh, I, I wrote the piece, uh, as you said, with uh, uh, contributions from Jenny uh, in the South and a half dozen or so other reporters all, all all around the country. And I guess what we were trying to accomplish, you know, I have a, a former uh, editor at the LA Times. His name is uh, Dean Baquet. I'm not sure what ever became of him. And he used to say, and, and I love this, he used to say that a, a campaign is the opportunity to tell the story of a time and place. So what we really wanted to do with that piece was just to sort of say, you know, to put it another way, you know, kind of where is America's head at? Uh, I mean, this is just such a crazy election. I won't, you know, belabor it. Obviously, we're all living through these times, pandemic, you know, uh, bad economy, just just odd, very scary, very, very fraught times. And It kind of came together. We had these uh, calls uh, quite frequently, you know, where the staff gets together, we kick things around, and I had a colleague who uh, was, uh, one of his folks was in the story, who was in Florida, who was interviewing people for another story, and came across this woman, uh, a gal out with her father and son, who were buying plywood. She she was in the story, you know, getting ready to board things up uh, and and, and looking to secure a a water supply, a safe water supply. when. you know, the apocalypse comes on election day. And then another reporter chimed in with talking about how he had read where uh, gun sales are up dramatically. And we include that as well, dramatically among, uh, among black Americans. So it's sort of like, you know, it, the idea was, well, if you write a story just quoting Trump supporters, people would say, oh, it's just those crazy Trump supporters. If you did a story that just said black people, people would say, oh, well, that's just crazy black people. But, you know, the idea was to show, you know, I, again, not this, you know both sides or 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 false equivalents, but just to show that there's this raging uh uh paranoia fear and loathing uh, a phrase that dates both you and I but that it's there and it's widespread and it's not just on the left and it's not just on the right, it's out there and it's very pervasive across the political spectrum
0: you know we're talking about dating ourselves and I, I, you know I, one of the things that really st- struck me about the story was you know really how how not familiar this is you know in the last you know for the last few cycles you have to go i mean there's a point in the story where i think you even you, you quote an academic in parentheses saying look this is not entirely novel but it has been a while since it's felt quite this general sense of of you know the center will not hold and the sense that you know the 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 the, the, the sense that this these these feelings of threat, which you're calling paranoia but also you know a kind of decay in faith in the system is just so widespread. It's been a while.
1: Yeah, yeah. I did a piece earlier this year that sort of uh, drew the contrast of 1968, which, you know, was was a horrible year of assassination and, and riots and unrest and protest and, and, and drawing some parallels. Um But you really have to go back that far. Um But even then, I don't think, as you suggest, you had this this, this complete... Uh lack of confidence just just not just in the institution but in the election itself now you know to 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 be blunt and I don't think this is a, a partisan statement or an opinion you know you do have a president who has used his office to call into question uh the legitimacy of his selection the 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 veracity of it, uh, uh, the means by which we're conducting this election. And and that has contributed en- enormously to this. So, you know, you, you you take pandemic, you take social isolation, you take all the stuff that everybody's living with, and you have a, a president who has, you know, rather than laying a calming hand, if you will, has raised a clenched fist. I think that's contributed to it as well.
0: You know, I- I'm curious, as you know, as you went through the raw material of the pieces of, you know, this, you know, it seems like you did kind of dozens of interviews for this story, you and your colleagues. Um, you know, could you see the, you know, how clear was the influence of the president's rhetoric in the raw material you had to choose from here?
1: Well, it was it was right out there on both sides. I mean, on, on the one hand, you had supporters of the president who were using many of the same talking points, if you will, that he does. I think we quoted one woman uh, questioning the validity of, of absentee ballots, you know, in, in, in inferring that uh, uh, there was widespread fraud, or at the least it would, it would be very easy. She talked about getting multiple applications and how, you know, she had the opportunity if she so chose to. Return multiple ballots with multiple names. That obviously echoes what the president has said about um, the veracity of the election, legitimacy of, of mail in ballots, which it should be said there is no evidence of, of widespread fraud. And then on the other end of the uh, spectrum, you had Democrats who were reacting to uh, what the president has said, his suggestions that he won't necessarily commit to a peaceful transfer of power. And, and that's raised uh, all sorts of concerns on both sides. So I would say that, you know, the president whether you love him or loathe him or somewhere in between, very much is shaping attitudes in the way people on both sides are, are, are looking at this election and how it's going to come off. And more importantly, the point of the, of the story was really looking at post-election. It wasn't trying to say whether uh, Trump would win, Trump would lose. It, it was saying how people look at the aftermath. You know, what happens on, on, not on November 3rd, what happens on November 4th and thereafter. That's what we were really getting at.
0: Yeah, and the story did a good job, I think, of, of making sure you included a, You know, examples, you know, there's kind of a, you know, there's a two by two matrix here of Trump supporters, Biden supporters, expectations of Biden victory, expectations of Trump victory. And you kind of you do a good job of filling all those boxes in in this story. You know, I'm curious, as you as you've been talking to people and you consider all this, we did a panel that at the together at the Tribune Festival about a year ago with, you know, three other national political journalists in addition to yourself. And one of the things that we all talked about was the sense that at that point when we were you know, really the the democratic primary was kicked into high gear and there were still, you know, a zillion candidates and Democrats were trying to game out you know, who they wanted to vote for and Republicans were watching the race and doing a lot of handicapping. One of the things we talked about on that panel That I think everybody, as I recall, was struck by was how engaged and how closely um, voters that people were talking to were following the election in a way that, you know, was very, you know, reporter and insidery like at the time in the sense that I think. You know i think it was katie gluck who kind of used provided an example that said you know yeah i'm mean, asking somebody about who they preferred and they go into this parsing out of well you know if i vote for x they're going to run well in this part of the country but they won't be able to win north carolina etc cetera, etc cetera. you know do you does it feel like that has given way to something more visceral i mean i was really it really that really occurred to me as i was reading this story that there's a lot of attention to the election, but the, the gut level assessment of it has changed.
1: Well, you know, it's funny because I think I made the comment at the time that we've become a nation of pundits, right? It's sitting like, well, how's this going to play in Ohio? And how's that going to play in North Carolina in a way that really I hadn't seen before? I, I, I think, let me see how to, how, to, how to put this. Yes, there is that, that, that visceral uh, concern, that fear that some people have. Um, but right alongside it is, is sort of a, a, a more cerebral uh, portion of the electorate, which I can't tell you how many times I've heard over and over again, um, not crazy about Joe Biden. And you know, I shouldn't say there are people, you know, other than Joe, who are crazy about Joe Biden, but, you know, over and over again, people you know, not crazy about Joe Biden, but you know what? We got to get Trump out of the White House. We are Democrats talking or independents who don't like the president. You know, we got to get him out of the White House. And so I'm willing to make that calculation. So it's less visceral in that instance than the cerebral notion that, hey, this is he may not be my first pick he may not be my second pick but anything to get donald trump out of office and so there's a lot of yeah there's a lot of visceral concern and fear but again it's sort of that 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 cerebral calculation that a lot of folks are making this time around
0: yeah and and i think part of it i you know that's I, i think that makes a lot of sense and i think you know part of it is just as i was even saying that there's a there's definitely just a contextual shift from a primary election to a general election, but it does seem that there's a lot to consider here. I mean, we were talking, you know, among the, one of the polling teams I'm on that recently about trying to pull the Supreme court race and its impact on, or the Supreme court nomination and its impact on the presidential race. And, you know, there's a lot of complex calculations that are, you know, it's a little unclear. I mean, it's my default would be to say, well, you know, we can't really ask people what they think about the Senate nomination process, you know, in too much detail. And I still believe that at the same time, I think the the court nomination case, and we can kind of talk about that a little bit, raises the issue of just how deeply some voters are thinking about this. And I think, you know, the, the, the 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 Supreme Court nomination is actually one of the more complicated things that I think a lot of voters do hold in their head that's a little more average than, you know, do I think healthcare is Im- that's a little more complicated than do I think health care is important or not. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Yeah, you know, to quote your good friend Bob Dylan, we live in a political world and everything these days is filtered through. Not everything. I mean there are people who just don't care, there are people who who, who just don't Filter everything through a political lens. I think for a lot of uh, a lot of people on both sides, everything these days is filtered through a, you know, does it help Trump? Does it hurt Trump? Does it help Biden? Does it hurt Biden? Is, it, is my side, if you will, going to uh, advance, or or is this going to hurt? So that's sort of the reflection response now to, to anything and everything that happens. You know, how's that going? Is that going to unsettle the race? And interestingly, you know, we have sort of this paradox where we've had these huge, major seismic uh upheavals. and and you know yes i think the pandemic has certainly played a role in the presidential campaign but you know i'm talking about revelations about about you know the, the woodward book and I, I also i could shorthand these things for a political audience but you know the woodward book and the atlantic magazine article about trump about the president supposedly denigrating troops and people just keep waiting for you know this huge shift in the race and you know your pollster it looks like, you know, four years ago, it looked like, uh, I'm going to get myself in trouble here trying to sound like I know what I'm talking about, you know, but an EKG, which I believe bounces up and down, you know, and this this looks more like a patient who who flatlined. I mean, you saw four years ago, um, again, up and down and up and down and up and down. This has pretty much been a straight, you know, a, a, a flatline with very, very little movement despite these, these these events, you know. Will something happen to change it in the next five weeks? I mean, anything is possible, but but, but you know,
0: that hasn't happened yet. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's interesting, you know, if we look, I think you're right. And we look back at, um, and I was just kind of reexamining some of the, you know, political science writing on this and some of the the debriefs on it for some other things I'm working on. But, you know, on one hand, I keep saying to people, you know, look, as they ask about the polling, particularly in Texas on the Biden Trump race, you know, it, the pattern has been pretty steady. There's been some variance in it. You know, Trump has led every poll, but by a, you know, a, a margin smaller than one might have expected and certainly smaller than we saw persist between the Democrat and the Republican in 2016. On the other hand, you know, a lot of things happened in October last year. You know, we're still at the very right. end of September, you know, it would last election in 2016. We would yet to see you know, the, you know, the Access Hollywood tape, the various Comey announcements, a couple other things. But having said that, those things didn't move the dial appreciably. If you look at the, at the polling, it just you know, they had little, you know, minuscule impacts of, of questionable amplitude. And we don't know even if, if it was that that moved those things. It could have been part of the just the noise in the lines of doing the polling. So,
1: well, and, and, and yeah, giving credit mean, where I, due. There, there was a great line and I, I can't remember who or where, but there actually was may sound somewhat oxymoronic thing. There was something clever and witty on Twitter, but there was. And someone said maybe the October surprise is there's going to be 500,000 huge things of consequence and nothing will change in October. So maybe that's our October surprise this year.
0: Yeah. And, and I think, you know, and I think it comes from, you know, I mean, can you change partisanship? And, you know, now the, you know, as you alluded to, and what you were saying a minute ago, is there anything that will change people's view on either side of Donald Trump? And so right. far it just doesn't look like it and that kind of you know yeah. and so you know so that leads me to you know and i i'm thinking about this myself i mean what do you think about the latest you know you know huge monumental story per your your description on the trump financials and you know this big you know what was it you know 9000 word new york times story over the weekend yeah. and with more follow ups promised i mean it has a lot of different strands and I, you know, I, I don't know if any of it sticks other than to reinforce pre-existing positions. I, you know, what do you think?
1: I, you know, I, I think first of all, you know, to tip my hat, I, I think it was a, a phenomenal piece of uh, of journalism and and and, and great work. Uh, by the New York Times. I mean, look, I think there is a group of Americans who, if Donald Trump were to take a COVID swab and shove it up someone's nose and infect them on Fifth Avenue, would vote for him anyway. (laughs) And I think there's a swath of Americans who, if he walked across the Potomac and hand-delivered a vaccine to Tony Fauci, would vote against Trump regardless. Nothing's going to change these people. Um, that said, there is, you know, a group that is persuadable. I don't think it's a large one. But I, I think more significantly what this does is, you know, right now, if the polls are to be believed, put as big an asterisk next to that as, as you choose to. If the polls are to be believed, the president is behind. He's not just behind nationally. He's behind in the battleground states. He's behind in enough states that he will lose in the Electoral College if things happen as they look in the polls right now he needs to make up ground. And any day that he is not making up ground, any day that he spends defending his taxes or talking about $70,000 in hair uh, styling write-offs, that sort of stuff, any, any day, and there's only 35 left between now and the election, any day that is not, uh, in which he is not gaining ground, in, in which he is not on the offense, is a day that is lost. So to me, that perhaps is the greatest impact, is, is what they call it, the opportunity cost.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that makes sense. And I've been, I mean... And we're in such a, you know, we're in a weird speculative world here and in a weird speculative world about, you know, the cognitive space of voters, which, you know, one always has to be really careful about, you know, I've been trying to subdivide this into, you know, things that are not enabling Trump, the president to make up ground because he has to talk about things that he's failed at and things that you know, give him a chance to to avoid the topics that he wants to avoid. I mean, he needs to avoid the economy and, and his handling of the pandemic. R- largely, he needs to avoid things that point to this election as a referendum on him. You know, in that sense, I, I think that the Supreme Court vacancy gave him a little bit of a respite because it, it gave him an issue that he could, that enabled him to talk about, you know, this being not just a referendum on him but an, you know but an alternative you know a, a choice between two different routes in this case the Supreme Court route and, and the route on all these on the, on the involved issues between he and Biden. there are elements of the financial of the of the New York Times story that if it could really take might actually have an impact on those persuadable voters that you're talking about. But I don't think it's the, I don't think it's the angle that's getting the most coverage. I don't think it's the tax angle. I think there are pro- probably other elements that are a little bit more in line with corruption and self dealing. You know, in some ways, you know, it is a it is a monumental, great piece of reporting. But it's almost as if the size and scope of it is a little bit to its disadvantage in terms of affecting voters because there's so much in there, and I think it's you know the coverage is cycling through a lot of it.
1: Yeah, although I would say there are a couple things that are pretty uh, resonant and clear-cut to people. You know, $750 a year in taxes is is, is is a bumper sticker, right? I mean, you know, if you can fit it on a bumper sticker, pretty good rule of thumb, if you can fit it on a bumper sticker, you know, $750 in federal taxes, you can fit it on a bumper sticker, $70,000 in you know, deductions for hairstyling, you can sit on a bumper sticker. So, you know, again, I don't want to make too much of this because, you know, time and again, yeah. we've seen uh, these, these, these what seem like, you know, huge revelatory uh, moments that, that have very, very little impact. But, you know, I mean, to put it simply, you know, you have you have all your assorted degrees. I've written, you know, blah, 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 ad nauseum over the years. It's really, very simple. If it's Trump versus Trump, there's no way he can win that. If it's Trump versus Biden, then the president has a chance. Got to sh-
0: yeah, I agree with that. Now, now speaking of these candidates and, and you know, for, you know, before we run out of time, um, you know, I want to ask you a little bit about Kamala Harris. You and I have talked about her quite a bit over the over the last couple of years, particularly since yeah. obviously she was she was in the presidential race. But, you know, you tell us a little bit, you know, you've been writing about Kamala Harris for a long time. From a pretty close perspective as somebody who has written about politics from California and for the Los Angeles Times, um, you wrote a couple of really, you know, to my mind, definitive profiles of her when she was in the presidential race. One that ran in October 2019 that really was, was somewhat prescient to my mind about. the kind of faint praise for her in her home state and then another one when she got out of the race in December. We haven't really talked about it since she's been resurrected to some degree as a vice presidential candidate. And, you know, I'm curious, tell us a little bit, you know, tell the audience a little bit about your background covering Kamala Harris. And then I'm curious what you make of her as a vice presidential candidate now that she's back in the limelight.
1: Well, uh, I, I've known Senator Harris since she was District Attorney of uh, of San Francisco, and I've always had uh, a very good, cordial relationship with her. I'm not sure how good that relationship is these days, given those stories you mentioned. But um, you know, I, I've known her personally. We we would have lunch now and again just to uh, share political gossip and chat. She's she's very good company for whatever that is worth. Uh, fun, uh, intelligent, thoughtful, good company. Um, you know, she she went from district attorney in San Francisco to attorney general. A really tough race. I'm going to tell you the only really tough race she had statewide, I should say. She had uh, she knocked off an incumbent district attorney in in San Francisco, which was no 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 small feat. Uh, then was elected uh, attorney general, like I said. Um, you know, toughest race she ever had running against uh, uh, L.A. County's uh, district attorney. Won that race, not by a lot, but won, and then had... Uh, Pretty smooth sailing to uh, the Senate, and then launched a presidential campaign. And I think if there was a fundamental um, flaw, was a fundamental flaw to her campaign. It pains me to say this as a native Oaklander to to invoke the infamous uh, uh, Gertrude Stein about there being no there there. But you know, I, I think what 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 Senator Harris lacked as a presidential candidate was a seeming core set of values or principles. I think there was the impression that she was running basically for the sake of running, running for, uh, with the sense that now was the time for uh, uh, a black woman uh, to run as a representative of a Democratic Party that is increasingly uh, a, a party of, uh, of uh, i say, minorities, but in some states they're, they're a plurality, but uh, of minorities, uh, of women. And so, you know, um, there just wasn't didn't seem to be a a core set of issues or values that she was running on as a a presidential candidate. And and that hurt her in a way that I don't think it's it's as much an issue. Um, You know, there was a quote in that November story you mentioned from a longtime student of California politics who said to me that, Part and I'm doing this off the top of my head, so I may not get it all together right. But the idea was that part of Kamala Harris's problem as a presidential candidate was that she could not decide whether she was uh, a conservative Democrat, somewhere in the middle, a progressive. Uh, and he said that you know if, and this was you know before we knew she was going to be on the ticket, he said, but if she was the vice presidential ticket, that problem would go away because she would be whatever the top of the ticket wants her to be. Um, you know, and that's what we've seen. And I don't, I, I don't want to make Kamala Harris seem uh, vacant or uh, for a real empty suit in any way but you know the role of the vice president is to do what the top of the ticket uh, or I should say what they agree upon in tandem is the role of the vice president so she hasn't had that that problem Kamala Harris is very very good she's uh just an absolute grind when it comes to preparation. I mean, we'll just prepare herself uh, to a uh, uh, fairly well. And, and, and you see, you, you see that in her, I, I don't want to use the word performance because that's somewhat kind of pejorative, but you see it, you know, uh, when she's had these break, breakout moments on Capitol Hill, whether it was uh, uh, quizzing uh, Jeff Sessions or Brent Kavanaugh or uh, William Barr. She's been very, very strong and very powerful in those moments when she's been able to prepare a lot. Um she there is a performative aspect of politics. And I don't see that as a pejorative, but there is. She's a former uh courtroom litigator, so she's she's very, very skilled at that. She's had a couple opportunities, will have a couple opportunities. She had her uh, uh speech at the convention, which which you know didn't knock anyone's socks off, but was, was, was you know was serviceable to good. Um and then she'll appear on the vice presidential debate, which again is, is, is sort of her forte. So Bottom line is, I think she will be, uh, win, lose, or draw, I think she will prove a better vice presidential candidate than she was a presidential candidate.
0: Not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but, you know, can't really help it if we're talking about this. You know, so uh, as, as you look forward, I mean, should Biden win, you know, this this puts her back in the presidential tier. I mean, do you suspect then that the experience would you know, fill in some of those gaps that you were, you were saying we were there. And again, I, I think you've been, you know, fair and, and, you know, to do some work for you, I mean, you, I think you do a good job of saying, you're not saying that she's vacant or, or incapable, but that there was a, you know, a certain absence at that point in her career in the presidential race. Do you think this, you know, in a sense fills that gap? If she, you know, were Biden to win and were, were she to serve as vice president?
1: Yeah, I would think so. I would think so. She will be uh, at at Biden's uh, proverbial right or left hand, depending where she's sitting. Uh, it'd be interesting to see what role he gives her. I mean, you know, you know your history. You know that by, the vice presidency used to be basically a, a nothing burger, but has become quite important. Uh, from Walter Mondale on, you know, presidents tasked their vice presidents with specific things. So I imagine a, a lot will depend on, on how she serves and what her role is as vice president. But, you know, I, I think that, you know, it can't help but uh, give her more grounding, more seasoning, more experience. And, you know, definitely, you know, win or lose, I, I think there's no question that as we start out, um, whether it's, it's you know, November 4th of this year or four years down the road or eight years down the road, that as we start out, Kamala Harris would be the front runner to be the next Democratic nominee for president.
0: And you will have a lot of insight in, into, that, into that candidacy should it play that way. Mark, thanks a lot for being here. Uh, I know you're busy and working on a lot of stuff and have a, a lot of headspace to fill, so we appreciate you coming by.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. You take care. Uh, that's it for this week's second reading podcast. As always, you can find this podcast on the Texas politics project website, along with, you know, our historical archive of data and writing information about government and politics. Primarily, they're not exclusively in Texas. That's texaspolitics.utexas.edu. Thanks to our technical staff in the college of liberal arts, uh, in the liberal arts development studio, at the University of Texas at Austin. And thanks to all of you for listening. Until next week, I'm Jim Henson, and so long. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.